Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the podcast. We are crawling at the moment through this book. I apologise for the, the, the fairly short readings. They don't feel short. <clears throat> they feel like they go for about a month each, but I'm aware that we're not tracking very quickly through this book. Um, Swim said the Mama Fishy made some estimates earlier on um, about our finish date, and I'm aware that we've definitely slowed the pace since that especially in the last three or four days. Um, it's just a matter of having a lot of work, having a busy family, and uh, this book being very, very, very long and tedious doesn't help too. Um, but I am, in general in life, in a phase of um, last year, year before, especially the years before that, but I've just had too many things going on. Like, I'm just, I just have too much stuff to do, you know? Um, I'm just one of those people when, and all of that stuff, most of that stuff has involves sitting at my computer. So I'm working a full-time job and it's very, I don't know, tiring, this job that I'm doing. I'm an IT um, senior technical business analyst um, for an energy company down here. And if that role sounds like it's quite tedious and arduous, it is. It's a good job. I find it, um, I don't know, not easy. It's always challenging, but it's it's not too stressful. But it's definitely the kind of work where by the end of the day, even though you've just been sitting there, your brain is just zapped of its energy. You know, there's not much left in the tank. And then when you get handed a four-month-old four baby at that point... And you've got five hours of, you know, baby duties directly out of work, plus making dinner, you know, all this stuff. I was just bloody tired. Not to mention, you know, I used to write books. I used to consider myself an author like that. I haven't touched that for for over a year. Um, you know, my band, I play in a band. I play in a metal band. We've got a gig tonight. So I've got to go into the city and play in a metal band tonight. Um, which, uh, you know. Which is why I'm recording this a little bit earlier than usual. Probably still upload it late, though. Um, all these things. Um, what? Yeah, in my life is what I was saying. So I've had this plan for six months or maybe even more to like. Um, I, I've got so many things on my plate. Launchpad. You know, I forgot to even mention I run a small business. You know, visiting schools and helping them make anthology books. Um, so many things. I've got all these things that I was doing passionately and they're just on the back burner, like my YouTube channel and, um, you know, this podcast is, is one thing that's on the plate. The list goes on and on. Yeah. So many things on my plate. I'm editing books for other authors. I'm literally in the middle of helping an author edit and publish his book right now. That's a paid gig. I'm grateful for that. Um, but it's another thing where I'm like, geez, where am I going to, when am I going to do that? Like I literally get, get into bed at night and grab my iPad and start editing his book. <laughs> like as, you know, we put the TV on and the baby's settled and we all hop in bed, and, you know, all me and, me and my partner hop in bed. And um, then I get out my iPad and start editing, you know, it's just, I don't know. But my desire, this is what I've been trying to say for three minutes now, is all these things are on my plate. I want to take everything off my plate. 
you know, take everything off my plate, except of course my, my job, you know, I don't want to quit my job, I'm going to have my full-time job and no other things that I'm doing. So the podcast is naturally coming to its conclusion after this book. Great. Um, you know, I'm not going to take up any editing work for anyone just just for now, you know, just so I've got nothing on my plate. I'm not going to take on any school with Launchpad. Um, the band, you know, that's just the band. That's that's more of a, a hobby, I guess. Um, or a, not hobby. It's recreational. I enjoy doing that. Well, I enjoy doing all these things, but I think you know what I mean. It's a social thing. That's what I'm trying to say. The band is a social thing. Um, anyway, I just want to have nothing on my plate. And then just enjoy that for a little while. And I'm sure I'll get bored immediately. But I just want to enjoy that for a little while. And then what I want to do is just put something back on my plate. You know? And just take a bit of time to decide what 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 thing do I want to put back on my plate and why. And, and as I put it back on, I'm going to make sure I'm not overloading my plate here, am I? Let me just be smart about this. Um, and temper it a little bit. Maybe I can put it back in my plate in a smaller capacity. You know, maybe I'll maybe I'll do another podcast, but it'll be, uh, you know, an ad hoc podcast, or even a, you know, a weekly podcast would be far less of a commitment than a daily one. Um, I'll definitely put some writing back on my plate. I'd love to get back into writing. I'm halfway through a novel that I'm collaborating with another author. Now he went off to university at the start of last year so he's in his second year of uni this year and since then you know neither of us that was about the time that I went full-time with work so you know we've both put it on the back burner but I'm sure if I knocked knocked on his door and said hey let's let's start writing again he'd be like heck yeah um anyway ranting starting off the day off with a good rant um I hope that's okay. Now, all that is to say, I've been ranting for five, six minutes now. Um, like this book, with all this in my head, I'm reading this book and just nothing is sinking in. Like, it's amazing to me. I read and read and read and words are coming out of my mouth and then at the end of it, you know, swim or take one of you guys or someone will give me a recap of what I just read and I'm like, I literally have no memory of any of that and I just read it. <laughs> it's like, uh, and the writing style, like these sentences, they're so tedious. I can't imagine why anyone would aim to write a sentence so, so, so empty of interest. Like, it's like he's compiled the sentences specifically to be uninteresting. And he's very good at it. <laughs> um, I tee up my sentences when I'm writing. And I, what I mean by tee up is I grab your interest and then present you with the bit of information that is important for you to follow my story. And if I feel like a, a little nugget of important information might be missed, I'll spruce up the language to make it more engaging, to, to grab your attention again. And I do that as a favor to you, the reader, so that you enjoy reading my work and are entertained and you might have an emotional response to it or 
um, you know, get a laugh out of it or, or something. Enjoyment, engagement, interest, intrigue, you name it. I'm just trying to do you a favor with my writing. The point of my writing is always, it's never like, look at me, look how good I am at this. It's always more like, what can I offer to you, my reader? I'm, I'm making a product here, you know? Um, my boy recently discovered humming and he closes his lips and goes, mm-hmm. and he does it because it feels good in his head, I assume. Like it, it kind of vibrates in his mouth and he's interested in that. He's four months old. So, you know, actually he's five months old in two days, you know, and it feels good to him to do that. It sounds weird and annoying, but it's cute because he's a baby. But if you grew up to be a singer and you went up to a microphone and just went mm-hmm, in front of your audience and everyone would be like, that sounds terrible. And you're like, yeah, but it feels good to me. It's like, well, do it in your bedroom then. Like, don't present that to an audience because it's good for you. Sing. We want to hear singing. And that's what this book is to me. It's just George Moore going, mm, because it feels good in his head. Um, and that's the best analogy I've ever come up with. Okay, so <laughs> let's continue. Uh, Techrevix says this, This blow-by-blow account of the dinner and the speeches made is certainly of interest for historians, but it's hard to see what Rita Moore had in mind for all this. It's very self-involved and hard to sift through. Hey, here, here. In lieu of having anything interesting to say about today's chapter, I thought I'd help Andrew out with the pronunciation. Ah, oh, yes. Ave. 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 I think I've been saying Ave is Latin for hail. As in the title of the book, Ave. Ave is pronounced like Ave. 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 Was I saying it right? I think I was saying it right. It's pronounced at the front of the mouth with a little puff of air like Jawe. Well, I don't know how to pronounce Jawe. Um, Jawe. Is Ave right? Ave. 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 Is that right? <laughs> Sorry. This concludes my phonetics lessons and I don't take, and I hope you don't take offense. I'm an old Latinist. <clears throat> Can't help myself. I don't at all take offense to that tech. I know that um, one thing I realized is as a writer and a pretty big reader um, is that my written <clears throat> vocabulary is far bigger than my spoken vocabulary. Far, far bigger. And there's so many words that I know, but I don't know how to say. Um, and words that I've used in my writing that when it comes to saying them, I'm like, I'm only half sure how to say this because they're not words that people use. I've never really heard anyone say it. Um, or if I have, I just wasn't paying attention, which is not unlikely. Thank you for that phonetics lesson. Although I think I failed the lesson because I'm still not sure. I think it's av, ave. Although that doesn't make me do a little puff of air. Av, av. Is it like that? Anyway. <clears throat> um... Wikipedia tells us, says Swim, that the Romans used Ave as a salutation and greeting meaning hail. Oh, there you go. Also, Ave is the singular imperative form of the verb aver, which meant to be well. Thus, one could translate it literally to be well or farewell. That's beautiful. Actually, I really like that. Be well is just a nice thing to say, isn't it? I mean, farewell means the same thing, really, but be well just sounds nice. 
I think it sounds nice at least. It's like a kind thing to say. Um, oh, YouTube of someone saying Ave. Ah, oh, here we go. Avadi. What? Ave. Oh, Ave. 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 Okay. Was that what I was saying? Oh, man, I'm so confused. Ave. Thank you for that. There we go. Um, Takeaway from the reading. There seems to be factions among our attendees. Yeats cite ancient beliefs as the beginning of Ireland, which is then rebutted by another that Irish roots begin with the arrival of Patrick uh, in 1430, oh, sorry, 432 CE. Yeats is an Anglican Protestant. His rebutter is most likely Roman Catholic. Yeah. And that's just the classic Irish literature uh, trope, isn't it, really? I'm going to call it a trope at this point. What, are you Protestant? No. Oh, you're wrong. Oh, I'm not Protestant. I'm Catholic. Oh, wow, then. Um, And rinse and repeat. Should we have a war about it, or is it a different decade? Um, and that's Irish literature for you. I love, by the way, Irish literature. I love Irish, um, prose, usually. Not in this case, but I tend to. Um, I find the Irish to be very poetic in the way they, uh, formulate their ideas and also very rhythmic in their prose. And I love that. Um, although, you know, I can't really sense any of that. This doesn't even read to me like Irish writing. Ugh. I hope that's not terribly offensive to Mr. George Moore. Or I've been talking for 15... Oh, no. What have I been talking for? 14 minutes, and I haven't even started reading. So let's do that. Oh, sorry about the little edit there. I um, pressed pause to go and do something quickly and now it's the next day (laughs) now it's tomorrow um i I pressed pause and then you know something came up and then another thing came up and then another thing came up and then i had a gig and then it was too late and now it's the next day so it's quite the edit that you just jumped about 24 hours ahead in time um, all right, reading. Our conversation was interrupted by the arrival of A.E. I had read his articles in the Express and looked, looking at him, I remembered the delight and the wonder which his, his verse and prose had awakened in me. It had been just as if somebody had suddenly put his hand into mine and had led me away into a young world which I recognised at once as the fabled Arcady that had flourished before man discovered gold and forged the gold into a ring which gave him power to enslave. White mist curled along the edge of the woods and the trees were all in blossom there were tall flowers in the grass and gossamer threads glittered in the rays of the rising sun under the trees every youth and maiden was engaged in some effusive moment of personal love or in groups they were garlands for the pleasure of the children or for the honour of some god or goddess suddenly the songs of the birds were silenced by the sound of a lyre apollo and his muses appeared on the hillside for in these stories of the gods and mortals mixed in delightful comradeship, and the mortals not having lost at all traces of their divine origin, and the gods themselves being the kind, benef- 
magnificent gods that live in Arcady. The paper had dropped from my hands, and I said, Here is the mind of Corot in verse and prose, the happiness of immemorial moments under blossoming bows. When the soul rises to the lips and the feet are moved to dance, here is the inspired hour of sunset, and it seemed to me that this man must live always in this hour, and that he not only believed in Arcady, but that Arcady was always in him. While we strive after happiness, he holds it in his hand, I said, and it was to meet this man that I had come to Ireland as much as to see the plays. He had refused to dine with us because he did not wish to put on evening clothes, but he had come in afterwards more attractive than anybody else in the room in his grey tweeds, his wild beard and shaggy mane of hair. Some friends we seem to have known always and try as we will. We cannot remember the first time we saw them, whereas our first meetings with others are fixed in our mind and as clearly as if it had happened to no later than yesterday... I remember A.E. coming forward to meet me and the sweetness of his long grey eyes. He was more winning than I had imagined, for building out of what Yeats had told me in London, I had imagined a sterner, rougher, ruder man. Excuse me, young fellow. I'm trying to read. Would you like to play with this koala? Mm, you would. Yeats had told me how a child, while making walking along a country road near Amar, had suddenly begun to think, and in a few minutes the child had thought of the whole problem of the injustice of a creed which tells that God will punish him for doing things which he never promised not to do. Excuse me, young boy. You need all this noise. The day was beautiful, a beautiful summer day. The larks were singing in the sky, and in the moment of extraordinary joy, A.E. realised that he had a mind capable of thinking out everything that was necessary for him to think out for himself, realising in a moment that he had been flung into the world without his consent and had never promised not to do one thing or to do another. It was hardly five minutes since he had left his aunt's house, yet in this short space his imagination had shot up into heaven and defied the deity who had condemned him to the plight of the damned because, he repeated the phrase himself, he had done something which he had found and never promised not to do. It mattered nothing what that thing was. The point was that he had made no promise and his mind embracing the whole universe in one moment he understood that there is but one life. The dog at his heels and the stars he would soon see, for the dusk was gathering, were not different things but one thing. There is but one life, he had said to himself, divided endlessly, differing in degree but not in kind, and at once he had begun to preach the new gospel. I had heard how, when earning forty pounds a year in an accountant's office, he used to look at his boots, wondering whether they would carry him to the sacred places where the druids ascended and descended in many coloured spirals of flame, and fearing that they would not hold together for forty long miles, he had gone to Bray Head and addressed the holiday folk. I could hear the tumult, the ecstasy of it all, I could see him standing on a bit of wall, his long, thin, picturesque figure, with grey clothes drooping about it, his arms extended in feverish gesture, throwing back his thick hair from his face, 
telling the crowd of the sacred places of Ireland and the Druids of long ago and their mysteries and how much more potent these were than the dead beliefs which they still clung to. I could hear him telling that the genius of the gale awakening in Ireland after a night of troubled dreams returns instinctively to the belief of its former days and finds again the old inspiration. Oi, noisy. Hey, noisy. The gale seeks again the gods of the mountains, where they live enfolded in a mantle of multitudinous tradition. Once more out of the heart of mystery, we had heard the call come away, and after that, no one's other voice had power to lure. There remained only the long heroic labours which end in the companionship of the gods. The reason I have not included any personal description of A.E. is because he exists rather in one's imagination, dreams, sentiments, feelings, than in one's ordinary sight and hearing. And try as I will to catch the fleeting outlines, they escape me, and all I remember are the long grey pantheistic eyes and that have looked so often into my soul and with such a kindly gaze. Those are the eyes I said that I have seen the old Celtic gods, for certainly A.E. saw them when he wandered out of the accountant's office in his old shoes into Meath and lay under the tree that wave about the Druid hills, or sitting on some mountainside, Angus or Diarmuid or Grania or Deidre have appeared to him, and the Manana, Mananan, Maclear, has risen out of the surge before him, and Dana, the great earth spirit, has chanted in his ears, If she had not, he could not have written those articles which enchanted me. Never did a doubt cross my mind that these great folk had appeared to A.E. until he put a doubt into my mind himself, for he not only admitted that he did not know Irish, that might not be his fault and the gods might have overlooked it, knowing that he is not responsible for his ignorance, but that he did not believe in the usefulness of the Irish language. But how then am I to believe that the gods have appeared to you, I answered, that Angustan Diamond the son of Angus, have conversed with you, that Dana, the earth spirit, has chanted in your ears. The gods, he answered, speak not in mortal language. One becomes aware of their immortal presence. Granted, but the gods of the Gael have never spoken in the English language. It has never been spoken by any gods. Whatever language the gods speaks becomes sacred by their use. That is begging the question. I can't accept you as the redeemer of the Gael. I turn from him petulantly. Let it be confessed and asked somebody to introduce me to John Eglinton. I'm vexed, A.E., I said, and we'll go and talk to John Eglinton, for not having ever communed with the gods, he is at liberty to deny their speech. And John Eglinton told me that it was not from the gods that he had learned that he, what he knew of the Irish language, that this was only a very slightly knowledge acquired from O'Growney and some of Hyde's folk tales. So, you've learned Irish enough to read it. And I grew at once interested in John Eglinton, and pressed him to continue his studies, arriving that I had not time to learn the language myself. And now, what is your opinion about it as a medium of literary expression? Before he could answer me, I had asked him if he did not think that English was becoming a lean language, and all I remember is that in the middle of the discussion, John Eglinton dropped the phrase, The Irish language strikes me as one that has never been to school. Of course it hasn't. How could it? But is a language the worse for that? We began to argue how much a language must be written in before it becomes fitted for literary usage, and during the discussion I studied John Edlington, wondering why he had said that the Irish language had never been to school. There was something of the schoolmaster in his appearance and his talk, 
The articles he had published in the Express were written in a style of his own, but he had no valiant ideas like A.E., and A.E. had cast a spell, and only the eloquence could appeal to me. John Eglinton had seemed to me dryly a writer, and I could only regard as intolerable that an editor should be found so tolerant as to allow John Eglinton to contravene A.E., and remembering all this, I noticed a thin, small man with dark red hair growing stiffly over a small skull, and I studied the round head and the high forehead and the face somewhat shriveled and thickly freckled. A gnarled, solitary life, I said. Lived out in all the discomforts inherent in the bachelor's lodgings, a sort of lonely thorn tree. One sees one sometimes on a hillside and not another tree near it. The comparison amused me, for John Eglinton argued with me in a thorny, tenacious way. And remembering his beautiful prose, I said, The thorn breaks the flower, and continued discovered analogies. A sturdy life has the thorn bent on one side by the wind, looking as if sometimes it had been almost strangely strangled by the blast. John Eglinton, too, looked as if he had battled... And I am always attracted by those who have battled and who know how to live alone. Looking at him more attentively, I said, if he isn't a schoolmaster, he is engaged in some business, an accountant's office perhaps, and the tram takes him there every morning at the same hour. A bachelor has, he certainly is, and an inveterate one, but not because all women appeal to him, or nearly all, because no women appeals to him much not sufficiently to induce him to change his habits. He sits in the tram, his hands clasped over his stick, and no flowered skirt rouses him from his literary reverie. So did I see him in my thoughts going into Dublin in the morning without a feminine trouble in his life. If there had ever been such a trouble, it must have been a faint one, a little surprise to himself as soon as it was over. A woman must feel as if there was a stone wall between them. Many will think that this seems to imply a lack of humanity, for the many appreciate humanity and the sexual instinct only, an instinct which we share with all animals and insects. Only the very lowest forms of life are epicene. Yet somehow we are all inclined to think that man is never so much man as when he is in pursuit of the female. Perhaps he is never less man than at that moment. We are apt to think we are living intensely when we congregate in numbers in drawing rooms and gossip about the latest publications, social and literary. And there is a tendency in all of us to look askance at the man who likes to spend his evenings alone with his book and his cat. He looks forward to lonely holidays, seeing in them long solitary walks in the country, much the same walks he enjoyed the summer before, when he wandered through pleasantly wooded prospects, seeing hills unfolding as he walked mile after mile pleasantly conscious of himself and of the great harmony of which he is a part. The man who I am dreaming, shy, unobtrusive and lonely, whose interests are literary and whose life is not troubled by women, feels intensely and hoards in his heart sacred enthusiasms and sentiments which in other men flow in solution here and there down any feminine gutter. I thought of Emerson and then of Thoreau, a Thoreau of the suburbs, and remembering how beautiful John Eglinton's writings are and gnarled and personal like the man himself, my heart went out to him a little, and I wondered if he should ever become friends. I hoped we should, for I felt myself inclined to believe that the hard north is better than the soft piety, Catholic stuff which comes from Connaught. And that's the end of the chapter. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Toby, for whatever you're doing in the background. Uh, And I'll see you tomorrow.